we find in the research done by the SEF is that students coming out of sales programs, they, number one, they assimilate quicker, they perform faster, they actually like their sales manager because they understand what their sales manager wants from them, and they stay longer. They stay longer in their first job. Hi, I'm Kristen Wisdorf. And I'm Libby Gladys. We're hosting the Tech Sales is for Hustlers special campus series. There are almost 5,000 colleges and universities nationwide, and only about 200 have dedicated sales programs. We are finding the leaders of those programs to get a behind the scenes look at how they're prepping the next generation of sales stars. Join us as we talk about their own career journeys, what advice they have for students considering a future in sales, and insights into what every student needs to know for a sales career. The Tech Sales is for Hustlers special campus series. Welcome back, Hustlers, to another episode of the Tech Sales for Hustlers campus mini-series. Today, Libby and I are super excited to have Dr. William Steiger from the University of Central Florida. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanks for asking Yeah. Me. Yeah, we're very excited to chat with you, a Floridian, all about your program. In fact, we even have some alum or recent alum from your program as well. So we're very excited. We like to kick these conversations the same way, just to get things opened up. We want to talk a little bit about you. So this is the first question I ask all the students I interview. So I'm going to ask it of you as well, Bill. Take 60 seconds, give or take. And just tell us about you. Give us your highlight reel, I guess you could say. Highlight reel? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that won't take 60 seconds, that's for sure. I am a Chicagoan by birth and lived there most of my adult life. Then I received a promotion within my company to become a vice president of the newspaper in Orlando. And I did that for about 16 years. And then I retired and I had a number of other things going on, but I ended up retiring twice and I got fired both times. So I ended up having to go back to uh, work. So I got an MBA, went into education, ended up getting my PhD while I was there. So here I am. I've done multiple things and I've been very blessed to been able to land in a job that's the most satisfying job I've ever had. So that's interesting. You retired twice, but you keep getting pulled back in. So walk us through both of those uh, experiences and what caused you to, I guess, re-enter education after retirement twice. Well, I retired the first time, 2005, and I went to work in a kind of a mission assignment at a parochial middle and high school, helped them with strategic planning, wasn't working full time. My significant other told me that if I didn't find a job, I was not only going to get fired from retirement, but I was going to be out of the relationship. So I ended up going back to school and getting a master's degree and then ended up working uh, kind of in a COO role for a short period of time, but really didn't want to go back into business. So left that and went into teaching. Wow. I mean, too many people that retire multiple times during their lifetime. So that's pretty interesting. I want to talk a bit about your experience in sales in general, just kind of where your interest in the industry or in sales stemmed from and what that first experience may have been like for you. Now, you've probably heard this before, but sales is an accidental profession. It's not an intentional profession. At the sales program graduation, 
with parents there, I say, how many of you in all honesty, put your hand up when your student came home and said, mom, dad, I'm going into a sales program to become a salesperson. How many of you said, yay, thank God, they made a great decision. No, you probably said, I didn't send you there for that. And that's kind of the sentiment that most people have about salespeople. And ideally, we're working hard to change some of that. So it's an accidental profession. I got into it because I thought when I graduated from undergraduate, I was going into an ad agency business. I had friends working in the agency business. It was during six recessions ago, and they were firing people at the agency. So I ended up going to work for the Chicago Tribune. So I was self-selling advertising. It's the only job I could get. That's interesting because we do advertisement sales is still a very common internship type opportunity. We have a lot of people that come from that sort of experience and transition into technology. Will you walk us through some of the challenges that you faced when you first took that initial position? What did you have to kind of overcome, especially when you first started that role? Yeah, well, I was unconsciously incompetent. By that, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know why I sucked. So I had no clue. So you can be consciously incompetent, which means that you understand why you're doing what you're doing, but you don't really know what you're doing. So I stumbled into a field where I was actually unconsciously pretty good at it. So after about a year, the company provided no training. I went to my boss and said, there's a program over here down the street in Chicago that IBM runs. It's called IBM Sales Training. I said, I'd like to go to that. Would you pay for it? He said, let me think about it. I thought about it. No. So I went and paid for it. And quite coincidentally, that's exactly the same model that we're using today, 110 years later. So it's been a great experience, but it was totally by accident. And just coincidentally, I stumbled into a program that, that everybody uses today, fundamentally. Yeah, it's very interesting, this accidental profession, because I think a lot of people who are listening would agree, right? Either the other professors that we talk to or students' parents. But like you said, this is something that you're trying to change. And now we have people graduating from college knowing that this is what they want to get into and it's not so accidental anymore. So you're definitely doing a lot of the work to change that, which is great for people like us at Memory Blue because we want to hire more and more sales students. I myself was also happened into this accidental profession. And I also got my start in advertising sales myself. So going from business to business, selling print advertising, which it looks like that was a long career for you working for different newspapers, right? So you started this thing, you asked and kind of invested in yourself and your own sales training. Walk us through like the rest of your career and how you kind of grew that piece of your profession and went from newspaper to newspaper. Well, I started at the Chicago Tribune when I got back from the Civil War. So it, it was a lengthy career, 30, oh, goodness. 34 years. By the way, forgive me, but I did some stand-up comedy when I was in college. So it, I can tell why. <laughs> I've never gotten out of that guise of, of dry humor. And, <laughs> Anyway, I spent 34 years with Tribune Company, both in Chicago and Orlando, lengthy career. And then, you know, the rest of my story. So I think I was the second oldest person to go through the MBA program at UCF. I was the oldest person in my doctoral and I think the oldest person yet who has gone through it. So, you know, age is just a number. And to me, people ask me when I'm going to retire. And I said, 
no time soon if my health stayed good. So yeah, you already tried twice and they wouldn't have you. So <laughs> couldn't have me. Nope, couldn't get it right. Couldn't get it right. <laughs> so thinking back to this successful career and now you're teaching the next generation of sales students. What are some of the most common misconceptions back then in sales and how do they differ from misconceptions now, whether it's your students or their parents' misconceptions, maybe? Well, I think in many ways, sales was not only an accidental profession, but it was the job of last resort. So it's a job you took when you couldn't get any other job. So you didn't always get the most potentially good fit people into jobs. So that's probably one big thing. The other thing is, We all today emphasize customer orientation. So we focus on customer satisfaction. How can we help the customer benefit? How does the customer benefit from doing business with us? That's a relatively new theory, which I didn't know until I was in my doctoral program. 1982, the theory of customer orientation was launched, which means before that, it was caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. If they'll buy it, sell it to them. Don't worry about it. So to me, my first 10 years in business, that was, my boss just said, what did you sell today? And if you didn't, why didn't you go back out and sell it again? (laughs) So today, that's not the case. Today, we really focus on customer orientation. And I believe it's made a real difference in the kind of people who want to get into these companies. Because companies like Memory Blue and others, you're focused on how do you build value for the customer? So big difference, big difference. I think it's interesting because, I mean, you just said it, often it's seen as a last resort type career. And with you having such a long career selling in an advertisement, I'm sure, especially if you're going back to get that certification through IBM and getting actually educated on sales approaches, there was a combination of natural ability and then strategic kind of taught ability as well. What do you think contributed most to your success when you were selling advertisement, both from a natural standpoint, any tactics that were just kind of tailored to you, but also intentional kind of more educated type strategies that you may have learned in your time in the classes with IBM? Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. Let me see if I can take a little time to do a couple of things. It turned out quite accidentally, I was good at it. I'm an introvert, believe it or not and pretty pretty strongly introverted. And I like to listen. It's one of the strengths of introverts in sales. I have people come to me and say, I'm introverted, I shouldn't be in sales. I said, you're perfect. Introverts like to listen first, think about an answer, and then respond. Great salespeople do that. I said, you're perfect. So I tended not to talk a lot. I tended to let the client talk. And coincidentally, as we know now, that's a really good strategy. So I'm always worried about people. I've I care about people and I care about my clients. I care about my students. And I think that empathetic kind of mindset with the ability to listen is a real foundation for anybody who wants to get in sales. Yeah, I think going back to your comment about how sometimes introverts feel like they can't be in sales and you're like, no, I'm an introvert, right? It's about listening and you can be in sales. That's a common misconception. And then that plus everything you're teaching your students, like you just said, are fundamentals for any professional job. So I think if you take both of those things, like kind of dismissing the the misconceptions and letting students know that this is good for you, whether you have this long 34-year career in sales or not, these are fundamentals and things you can apply in your professional career. I think that's really important and very enlightening for a lot of students to hear and know that they can take classes 
like yours and be prepared for how to work with people, how to listen, et cetera. Let me say first that one of the reasons I believe I've been successful in teaching sales is that I essentially interact and engage the students the same way I did when I was managing salespeople, exactly the same, no different. And so I treat them professionally. I treat them with respect. I have clear expectations. I want to understand their goals and expectations. So we start every class with that. It's an exercise everybody does in, in the program so that they understand where I'm at and I understand where they're at. So to me, once you establish kind of the rules of the road, the ground rules, the expectations, there's a theory called expectation theory. It's when you join a sales class, my expectation, I ask, what's your expectation? Do you expect to come out as great salespeople? as just more knowledgeable about salespeople. Um, I think you're going to be able to negotiate with salespeople so you'll get a better deal. So the truth is the basic sales class is the building block more advanced sales. That's just logical. But the reality of it is the fundamentals are not a lot different than a lot of other professional disciplines. So we work on really fundamental basic elements of customer relationships and why that's important. And then you work on sales skills. Oh, absolutely. And it's so interesting because we've talked to a handful of professionals and obviously sales educators over the course of this podcast. And a lot of them have spoken to what you just said, where these tactics, a lot of people have them already and they have this natural ability. They're just not named. And until you're in a sales course realizing, oh, that's actual strategy that I was using. It's just interesting how much natural ability a lot of people have, but don't recognize until again, it's in a classroom or in a textbook that they're reading. So I guess my follow-up question would be when it comes to your teaching style and sort of how you approach education within sales, what's one of the biggest concepts you teach individuals that are in those entry-level kind of initial courses with sales? Like, what do you think is most important for them to take away from that first course that they're taught when they're going through the sales education formally? That's perfectly logical. And the sales process is not complicated, but you need to learn the sales process. And it is a process. And I just completed a six-week summer class with a variety of just undergraduate students who had to take the class. I think it's required in their major. And honestly, we by the fourth week, we start to do role plays. We do sales, we do sales process in role plays. And by the third week, I had one of our corporate partners come in and just help me a little bit with coaching and grading some of the role plays. And he said, 25% of these people are better than the people I have working for me after three weeks because we taught them the sales process. And the process is logical, it's predictable, and it works. It does work. It does work. Yeah. I think that's such a good comment. It does work. And sometimes you might not see the fruits of your labor right away in sales, but if you stick to the process and the fundamentals that we know work, like you will see success. And so sometimes it can be harder for others to stick with it and have the patience at the same time to see success, especially when they're actually in their first job out of college. And maybe they're like, oh, wow, I thought I would get a sale right away. Or I thought I would see success immediately. But if you follow the process and you stick to it, you will ultimately see that success. Yeah. I mean, that's true. That's true. And you get better at it. Yeah. Every time you have a conversation, that's like practice. So I'm curious. So you said that it came naturally to you to listen and you really care about people. And so that resonated with your prospects. 
Well, what is something that is part of the process that maybe didn't come naturally to you or that you struggled to develop? Maybe something that 30 years ago was a weakness, but you worked on it. Second and third level questions. Second and third level questions. So, so let me, what do you like to do when you're not working? Then you would tell me and I would say, oh, really? How long have you had that as one of your hobbies? Okay. So is that an expensive hobby? Second, third, fourth, fifth level questions. Not natural, not human nature. We listen to respond as opposed to listening to understand. So trying to get students to listen and then take that response and get a second and third and fourth level. I mean, it's basic dating stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, where are you from? No, really? How long have you lived here? What do you like about the play? Blah, 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 blah. So it's basic interaction communication, but, but that, that's not natural. And it's the hardest piece to try to get students to embrace is the second, third, and fourth level question. It is the hardest piece. The other piece is basically trying to convince them, how do you close this up? How do you close? I show them the Alec Baldwin clip from Glenn Gary Cohen Ross, which I always warn them, if you're offended by obscenity, now would be a good time to go get a drink of water. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the truth. And that's why there's so many multiple ways to close even for introverts that are not direct, not in your face, not cheesy, and they have to find what that works for them. So simple as, so Kristen, when would you like to start? That's a close. Get an answer. Then tons and tons and tons and tons of affirmations, confirmations. What do you think? How does this look? Does this make sense? See how this could work for your business. Over and over and over. I told them to write them down, write five or six of those and just rotate them through the course of the sales conversation so yeah that's true closing is a series of closes it's not just one big thing yeah Yeah. it is yeah second and third level questions is the hardest easily the hardest i mean we see the same thing right when we train we hire over 300 people a year and when people are getting into the scr role you need such a good point it's not natural and we listen human nature to respond not really to uncover and Gosh, that's so true. And it's great that we know that they're going to struggle with it. I still struggle with it, right? So it's even better that you are teaching your students these things earlier than previously, you know, before all these sales programs existed. You have to just kind of go out there on your own and learn it on your own and maybe pay for an IBM sales training course to learn it. Now you're getting them prepared earlier than ever before. Yeah. Yeah, When I learned it, it was calling, they were called probes, questions, Mm -hmm. and it would say, to be a little star, it said, launch a probe here. And I'd like, dude, what is this, NASA stuff? I mean, I'm not really into that. <laughs> that is so true. And you made a great point, Dr. Steiger. They, it's just like dating, yeah. right? Like, let's go back to the fundamentals. You can use this in every aspect of your life. Yeah. <laughs> I was never transferred um, very successfully. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about your program, right? So you have this experience, you tried to retire, you came back, you teach these sales classes and you run the program. So tell us a little bit about your program. How many students, how long has it been a program at UCF? We're very curious. Are you looking to join an industry with unlimited professional opportunity? It has never been a better time than right now to start a lucrative career in high-tech sales. Memory Blue has launched hundreds of careers for accomplished high-tech sales professionals from our offices coast to coast. And right now, we're in hiring mode. 
Working with us will accelerate your professional growth and place you on a path to success early in your sales career. You'll get world-class training through the Memory Blue Academy program and sharpen those skills with ongoing mentorship and coaching from our seasoned sales leaders. Memory Blue is an expansion mode and we have immediate openings in all of our offices. We have been named one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. Magazine for eight straight years. Our award-winning culture has been recognized by third-party industry groups as the best in the business as we routinely add unbelievable benefits and rewards for our team. To learn more and apply to any of our openings, visit memoryblue.com careers today. Well, let me just back up one little step. And that is when I was in the MBA program, the professor that taught the marketing class in the MBA program came up to me at the end of the program and said, you ever thought about teaching? And I said, no. I was really thinking I was going to go back into, into um, business as a CEO, COO, vice president operations. I was typecast as a sales guy and nobody, I didn't really want to do that for another 10 years or more. And I said, no. And so 2008, y'all remember, you may not remember what happened, but we had the housing bubble, everything crashed. They yeah, were recession. firing the people who were in the jobs that I wanted so I called him up and I said, hey, you know that uh, question? Uh, I've thought more about that, and that sounds really good. So, so he brought me in as an adjunct, and after the first semester, I had two classes. He called me into his office, which is like when a coach brings you into his office. I figured, well, in a short career, <laughs> going to get fired again. <laughs> he said, the students at the end of every semester here, they do an SPI, Student Perception of Instruction Survey, and they grade you. And so he said, I got your SPIs and I had them run them again. And I said, really? I said, okay, good. I mean, okay. And he said, I had them run them again because you've been here for three months and you're the highest rated instructor in the department. And I said, yay, good. What does that mean? That means you get to teach again next semester as an adjunct. So the reality of it is I discovered two things. Number one, I liked what I was doing. And number two, I turned out to be pretty good at it. So very fortunate. People come to me and say, I want to do what you do. I said, go be an adjunct. You'll find out, number one, if you're any good at it. Most people aren't, I will tell you. And find out if, if basically you like it. Not a lot of people like classroom management. 50 Gen, Gen Xers or Zs or Millenniums or whatever you've gotten, it's not always a positive experience. So that led me to work for Two years as an adjunct, another year as a visiting instructor, and then I was finally hired as a full-time instructor. And in my fifth year, I became the coordinator for the sales program. So sales program's been around since 05, 2005. So first graduating class was 06. It had always been a single cohort of around 30 students, started in August, ended in May. It was seated in the marketing department but you were still a marketing major. You were just on a sales track. So subsequent to that, we ended up convincing the university we would make, it is now a major course of study within the marketing department. So you major in professional selling. You can also minor in professional selling. If anybody else in the university wants to be part of the program, you can. The class just graduated. I had a biology major, a psychology major, which is makes sense, an education major, communications, health and fitness, who else did it? So we'll take anybody who wants, has an interest in sales, they can minor or major in PSP. We also introduced a second cohort. So now we have students for you to hire, not only in May, 
but there's a cohort that starts in January, ends in December. So you have two chances a year to add our students who graduate to your programs. So program collectively between the two courts is somewhere a little less than 50 students. So it's still a small program by comparison to Baylor or some of the really big programs. Florida State has over 200 students. And so we're kind of moving a little quicker, more hands-on, but the program is relatively small by sales program standards. It's incredible how much growth it's seen over the years. And it seems like you don't hear of many universities that actually have professional sales as a, a choice of major and having that be a dedicated degree that you can actually pursue. I want to talk a bit about, you mentioned this very early on in the podcast today that you yourself, is a, you're an introvert. And I would say that most people probably believe that introverts wouldn't succeed in sales. And I think it's also interesting that so many different students of different education backgrounds and different majors are still taking your courses. So my question would be, what do you feel are the core qualities of successful sales students or students that you feel find success in sales as they pursue that next step? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because with our program, it's a little different. Students don't just sign up for our classes. They have to apply. So the program has a, it's a closed program. You have to apply. You have to go through three interviews. You have to submit a YouTube video to tell us why you should be in the program. So we get to pick our students. So, you know, every fall we come back and the sponsors go, another great class. Looks like a great bunch of prospects. I go, they better be. I picked them, right? So it's really important that in those interviews, we let them ask us questions. And that's one of the questions every student asks. What do you look for in a PSP student, an applicant? And we have the same answer. One of my colleagues, Dr. Messiah, and I interview. And first on the list, number one, coachability. If you want to come into the program and you have had a part-time job and you think you know everything there is to know about sales, you're not a good fit for us. So got you absolutely 100% have to be coachable. Number two, you have to have great character which is both ethics and principles. And we tell them that right up front. We have a 15-point professional agreement they have to sign when they enter the program. And it's all the zero-tolerance stuff you have in your memory blue zero-tolerance book, the seven deadly sins, right? So the things that you don't go on probation, you don't get a warning, it's today's your last day with the company and security will escort you out. We have the same thing. If they violate the and I warn them, this is one of the non this is one of the non-negotiables. This is your last day in the program. You're out. So and that includes ethical violations, cheating. It includes disclosing confidential information that you heard from one of your corporate partners. And there's seven of them and they can't get around it. So any kind of hostile work environment, anything that violates the university rules are diversity and respect for, for people. So we tell them right up front that those are the things that are most important, and, and that's really what we look for. We also look for people that are competitive, and that's not at the top of the list, but at, at the end of the day, you have to like to compete. In the list you gave me was, and I ask them, do you like to win or do you hate to lose, right? And so I ask them, and so it's one of those questions that people don't always quite know how to answer it, and if they haven't thought about it before. And I try to frame this carefully, but tell me about a time when you acted irresponsibly. And you'd be surprised what people will tell you. <laughs> I have to, you have to have the time out ready to go, right? Let's take a time out from that. 
like to hear more about that, but not when the camera's running. So let's turn that off. <laughs> what we look for are those things. And we look for people who are referred by people who are in the program as well. I mean, there's a danger of that kind of inbreeding thought, but the truth of the matter is people who like people who have their same values and we've taken them into the program probably have the similar values. That makes sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we hire brothers and sisters and sorority and fraternity members and all sorts of referrals at Memory Blue because high caliber, very competitive people, high octane people, they like to surround themselves with people like them. So it makes sense. But I agree in an effort to kind of expand the opportunity of more people and create diversity, you want to look beyond just referrals as well. So that's very interesting. You're the first program that has such a robust interviewing process to admit people into your program between the interviews and the YouTube video. I imagine just that process in and of itself is preparing them for obviously life after UCF, right? It not only does that, Kristen, but it also eliminates people before we have to interview them. There are people that say, really, I have to go through all that. Can I just sign up? No. And so people say, well, how many people do you reject? By the third interview, and the third interview, by the way, is with current members of the program. So the first two are faculty, and the third one, they're students. And I warned them. I said, this is going to be your toughest interview because, believe me, they're not going to give you a thumbs up if they don't think you fit into the program. Yeah, nothing like interviewing with your peers. They're probably the most, yeah, the toughest interviewers. Yeah, they're brutal. I have to pick the people carefully. We have the joke about, well, not the joke, but the question about if you were in a lifeboat, which of us here in this room would you throw out of the lifeboat? So kind of the little Lord of the Flies there. Yeah, I think it's great because you're right. It lets you know if this is how they're going to be in an interview and they're going to work for in an interview, then no one's their perfect self other than an interview. Or at least I like to think, right? Like this is your best self is in an interview. So if you're not turning it on for that and willing to do the work in an interview, how is it going to be after the fact? So that's preparing them for how they're going to be in the program, but also what's going to happen after they graduate and they represent your program out in their first job, second job, et cetera. So I love it. I think it's putting them in a real life scenario. And then You know, you're looking for the same qualities we do. The three C's, coachability, character, and competitive that you said. I think it really is the hallmark of the type of sales folks that we all look for and we want to continue to develop. Yeah, let me just quickly add, some of the students say, do you you care about my GPA? And I go, no, we want people who are smart. And I stop. And they go, wait a minute, don't you care about my GPA? I said, no, but we want people who are smart. And they don't, it takes them a little while to connect the dots on that. Not everybody has a high GPA. Not everybody has the time to have a high GPA. A lot of people have a lot of things going on in their life. So we, we want people who are smart. You have to be smart. You have to have, you have to have enough intellectual horsepower to be able to sell. It's not easy. It, it is complicated. And the best people I've ever worked with were really smart, but I guarantee you none of them had a high GPA. <laughs> I think that's a really great point. And it translates so well to, again, the type of individual that we hire here, because when we're 
evaluating talent. It's not about previous work experience as much as it's about those intangibles that you guys are looking for. And I think it's important for the listeners to recognize that there is not a one size fits all background or perfect ideal sort of profile and and whatnot of the perfect salesperson. There's so many different ways and approaches that an individual can take into this transition into sales intentionally and still find success, even if it's considered non-traditional. So I'm curious because I know that you, I mean, within your career, you started off as an individual contributor within sales. You have some experience within sales management. You mentioned earlier that your teaching approach is very similar to you being a manager and managing a sales team. I'm curious like about those kind of key similarities more specifically, if you could expand a bit on that. And then also what you're motivated by, what sort of pushes you to show up to work every day and, and what do you get satisfaction from in your work? Oh, okay. Well, again, there's a couple of left to unpack in that one. But I think that the key is, and I've managed a lot of people who wanted to go into management. And the real key to selecting successful managers to me was you have to find somebody who wants to generate more results through other people than they could generate on their own. They have to want that. They have to want to benefit the company by them convincing a group of people to go to a place that they wouldn't go on their own. In other words, that's leadership. And that's what you look for in really successful managers. And honestly, that's what I do. I mean, I warn people when they come into the program, I said, you're going to be really uncomfortable in this program. And there's going to be days you're not going to like me very much. And I'm not going to like you very much, but that's okay, right? Because that's against the law in Florida. So we're very careful about convincing people that if you come into the program, you're going to get stretched and pushed and pulled to places that you would not go if you weren't in the program. And virtually every student at the end of the program says that same thing, said, I didn't think I could do this. I didn't think I could get through that. I didn't think I could walk into a room with 150 strangers and by the end of the night know them all, which is we do the second week of class. We have a huge networking event with all of our corporate partners and all the students and they're terrified. They're terrified. So that's kind of the, the notion behind that. Then I answer your question. I kind of, I'm sorry, I, I digress there. No, that was absolutely perfect. And I guess going off of the discomfort piece within discomfort and pushing yourself outside of that comfort zone comes growth. And I think a lot of students that we work with, especially don't quite realize that until they make that transition in that first sales role. And they are so uncomfortable that within the first few weeks, they're questioning their decision to to transition. And it is about trusting the process. So I guess my follow-up is how do you prepare your students for the inevitable discomfort of that first sales role and that uphill battle of of learning the skill from the ground up? Yeah, that's what the program is about. And our program and others have a lot of experiential learning. So during the course of the semester, we have them on the phones probably six times. And they hate it. But we make calls for the UCF Foundation to set up appointments for their, I don't know what they call themselves, their salespeople, right? They're trying to generate money. We're calling for the Dr. Phillips Foundation Nights Under the Stars, where we're selling ticket packages to that. We make sales calls for the Orlando Solar Bears minor league hockey team selling packages for the holiday season. We're making calls for, again, this year. But four or five times, plus they have two assignments with their business mentor, where they have to put 14 to 16 hours into appointment setting. So it's almost every other week they're on the phone 
calling people they don't know. Now we coach them how to do that first, right? We give them the academic side of that and then they have to go do it. And then they role play with corporate partners. They don't role play with other students. Virtually all of them have internships with corporate partners and that's, they're on the phone, they're in front of customers, they're making calls They're as long as it's not licensed. So what we found, we find in the research done by the SEF is that students coming out of sales programs, they, number one, they assimilate quicker, they perform faster. They actually like their sales manager because they understand what their sales manager wants from them and they stay longer. They stay longer in their first job. So it's what we do. I don't have a textbook. I don't think many of the students, many of the programs yeah. do. You talked about the programs. There's 5,000 four-year schools and university, colleges and universities in the United States. There's 150 sales programs out of 5,000 schools. And even That's- 10 years ago, there was probably half. And I, when I was in college in 2008, there were like 15. <laughs> so Yeah. First one was 1982, Baylor. And until into the 2000s, there was less than 30. Yeah. In the last couple of years, it's really grown because I think recruiters, they finally figured out, why aren't we just picking on these schools if we need entry-level salespeople? Yeah. Well, and it's a testament to your program and what you're doing at UCF because you mentioned earlier the coachable, character, competitive student. And we have an alumni from your program who recently came on at Memory Blue, Casey Riles, and absolutely crushed it. She was all the things that you mentioned. She was prepared. She saw development and ramped faster. She knew how to accept expectations from her manager and execute on those. And she's now an alumni of our program. She got hired by our client. And so it really is a testament to what you are doing at UCF and with your students. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Hey, Casey is a painful introvert, by the way, if you don't know her that well. And she was an accounting major. I mean, when she first interviewed, she goes, I don't know if I'm right for the program. After about 15 minutes, I said, you're perfect. Yeah. And now she's a team lead at her client. So it's a lot of growth and development. Yeah. Yep. So I have a question. As a sales recruiter, I speak to a lot of marketing majors and, and graduates of marketing programs at universities. And it seems more times than not, it's an uphill battle to get them understanding the value of sales and this connection to marketing. So in your experience and looking back and reflecting on what you've taught in your classes, what advice do you have for marketing majors and marketing graduates that are hesitant about beginning their careers post-grad within sales? Well, in my signature of my email, my Outlook email, right above my name, there's my, in quotes, there's my branding, which is every job is a sales job. So when we recruit, I basically start by saying, who do you want to work for? Just tell me who you want to work for. Every single job, every single company they mention, they have a sales force. They have a sales force. They have a sales force. Do you think it's easier to get into that company the way you want to get into it or through a sales job? It's a gateway into the company. And you know what? For, for many of them, the light bulb goes on. And that's how we get many of our students where they go, never thought about it that way. So, geez, yeah, I, I want to work for Procter & Gamble. Yeah, we've got six people working at Procter & Gamble out of the sales program. And they weren't all marketing majors. So I want to work for Qualtrics. I want to work in social media. I want to work for LinkedIn. We have three people at LinkedIn. Yeah, great. What do you think? You want to work for LinkedIn? Join the sales program. So it is a battle, though. I will concede that. I mean, I get a lot of blank stares and roll eye rolls and things when I go recruit. 
And so it's a battle. You can't convince people who really aren't going to think it through. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your time today chatting with us. Personal experience, we know that your program is doing great things, and we are excited to get some more alumni from your program. And I hope the retirement community won't take you anytime soon. So. <laughs> you threw me out twice. <laughs> well, I've been able to give you some useful information for your listeners. That's great. And, and hopefully, along the way, I put a smile on your face occasionally because that's what. Humor is a powerful, powerful tool in sales. And I try to convince my students of that. I said, use it wisely, use it appropriately, but use humor. Humor is so important to deflecting your ability to get back to the subject you want to talk about. So yeah, and be genuine to who you are, right? So you're a stand-up, so you got to bring in the humor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, we're not going to, I'm just glad there was no YouTube before, before what happened to you. <laughs> it was totally inappropriate, but really, really damn funny. So <laughs> that is funny. Well, Dr. Steiger, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on and good luck. Taking an individual's raw potential and turning them into a thriving sales professional takes the right training. That's where Memory Blue Academy comes in. Memory Blue Academy teaches participants the fundamentals of sales development and all aspects of a lead generation role, regardless of the level of professional experience or background. The course kicks off with a two-day intensive bootcamp session, followed by a six-week ongoing educational program. This is the program every single Memory Blue SDR undergoes at the onset of their tenure. The curriculum covers a wide range of topics, including list building, objection handling, effective sales emails, and more. Participants will be shown how to successfully execute a diverse set of sales activities in a very short time, experiencing tangible and lasting skill growth. To learn more and sign up for a seat in an upcoming session, head to memoryblue.com academy. for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beep.